welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up and coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. Welcome to the first Meet the PAs podcast. Yay, we're really excited to have you guys here and we're so glad you tuned in to listen to us. This first podcast is just going to be an introduction to who Rachel and I are and our history as PAs and what's brought us here today to the podcast so far. Uh, so that's how we're gonna that's how we're gonna run this one. Yeah. So I'm Rachel. I'm a Canadian trained PA. Uh, I was in the inaugural class of McMaster's 2010 program. 2008 we started. I guess we graduated in 2010. So and I work in a semi-rural, small, ten-bed hospital um, in Midwestern Ontario. So how did I get to be a PA? Well, um, I did my undergrad in science and I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare. And I knew about the PA program in the States and it sounded perfect, but there wasn't really an option here for that. Um, So after my undergrad, I actually took a year off and worked Mm -hmm. as a pastry chef. So yeah, I took a year off and uh, backpacked around Europe for a little bit with my best friend and then I was a pastry chef for a year and then just was just trying to decide what I wanted to do. Okay, uh, so that is completely different. Pastry chef to medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I always knew I wanted to be in medicine and it, but I loved to cook um, <laughs> and it was a place that I knew people and was friends with some of the people who worked there and it actually was an amazing experience and it, some of the people I worked with have turned into my best friends in the entire world um, so it was I'm so glad I did it um, for two reasons one because I made really good friends and learned how to cook all fancy things and um, got to just really have fun for the year um, and the second reason being that it was that year that the PA program came to Canada. So it was <laughs> extraordinarily lucky. Um, so one of my relatives works at one of the universities in Ontario and said, hey, this PA program is opening up in Canada, you should apply. Um, and so I did, and I was super nervous because I knew they were only taking 20 some odd students. And I was uh, taking a, an additional physiology course that summer just to make sure that my I had the background in case I got in or, you know, if I was applying to med school or nursing school or whatever I was doing, I wanted an extra physiology course. So I was working my butt off, taking this physiology course and applying to the program and interviewing for the program. And I was really lucky to be, I guess, to be selected to enter the program at McMaster. That's sort of how I became a PA. How did you become a PA, Becky? <laughs> uh, well, I'm from the States, so it's a completely different dynamic. Uh, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to work in medicine. So I didn't know exactly if I wanted PA or nurse practitioner or physician or what that might look like, but I knew I wanted to be in the medical field. When I was in high school, there was a program for students who were doing well in, in the school that the state of Minnesota would pay for you to go to Uh, take college courses and they would also count at the same time for your high school classes so I actually went to college and high school and I became a 
I got uh, my two-year nursing degree, and so I started working at a nursing home and subsequently an internal medicine clinic at the age of 16. So I've been in medicine a really long time, <laughs> and uh, and it was great because then I could I, I had a way to pay a little bit anyway, sort of help me pay through my way through university and um, PA school as well. So I, then I went to university with that already starting a, a medical background, and I wasn't I started exploring my options and I knew pretty early on I didn't want the physician route it was seemed like constant work and um, you never had somebody to go to if you didn't know something I liked the idea of having somebody around when I didn't know the answer it felt a little more secure for me plus the job outlook for PAs is in the states anyway huge and we're working on it here it is improving it's improving <laughs> it's improving and the, I chose not to go the nurse practitioner route. You might have thought I would because I already was started in the nursing side. But I really, really like the science background side of it, of the PA degree. So I liked, I, I wanted to go that route for that reason, just a little more in depth on the science side. And also because I didn't have to dedicate to one specialty. Um, nurse practitioners, from the little bit that I know anyway, they're, they're definitely more solidified in the area that they study in and PAs can move around so I liked the broad spectrum that PAs could go at so I got my university degree in biology and chemistry and I minored in medical ethics it really saturated my, <laughs> my medical background and then I moved on to PA school in Chicago and uh, completed my degree there I moved to Canada for love you'll go anywhere for love so <laughs> That's what brought me here, and I came to Canada in 2010, um, right after I got married. So, I didn't. I knew at the time that the program here was brand new, and the first graduates were in 2010. I had no clue the differences though between Canada and the U.S. Like I just, I I didn't know I was coming to Canada to be a trailblazer. I had no idea the animosity that happened between. Um, the nurses and the PAs and the long road that would come ahead in terms of in terms of being allowed to practice and not working under your own license and all those little details I had no idea <laughs> uh, currently though I, I do I did come I did get a job at, at working in oncology and Owen sound so I did oncology for four years and then I moved to strictly palliative care so that's how that's my long story background um so Rach tell us about your experience thus far in emergency med what do you like about it what do you hope to see change in the future all those kind of things um well rural emergency medicine is a little bit different than big city emergency medicine and that's part of the reason I love it um, I actually fell in love with rural emergency medicine on my first my first clinical rotation, I was doing family medicine in Midwestern Ontario, and the family docs did one or two days a week of call, so when I was doing my family med rotation, I got to see the rural emerge, and I just thought it was sort of the perfect fit. Um, the volumes are lower, um, and the acuity is extremely varied. You get everything from coughs and colds and stubbed toes to major farm accidents, so the variety was there which was something I liked and I just it sort of struck me as something I wanted to do um, then I when the job came up 
in rural Emerge, I sort of jumped on it. And I've actually been there my entire career, going on seven years now, being a practicing PA, which seems like a ridiculously <laughs> long time. <laughs> and you started there on the on the grant on the new grant program. Is yeah, that how the, it it, yeah initially the new grad funding. So I had full funding for the first two years I was there, and then I had partial funding for another two years, and now um, I have a rather unique funding model where my salary is paid by the doctors that I work with and my benefits um, and whatnot are paid by the hospital. So we have a rather and you interesting are, funding right. model going on. You are technically a hospital employee. Yeah, I'm still employed by the hospital and so the physicians pay the hospital my salary. And then they subsequently give it to you. Yeah. And how many physicians are splitting that salary? Four. Uh, well, five technically. We I have four regular supervising physicians, and then I have one locum who comes on a regular basis, and then actually we have two locums that come on a semi-regular basis. So I guess six total. Okay, so the locums actually contribute to that. Then. Yeah. So whoever I'm working with on that day um, contributes whatever amount is due, which I actually don't even know what it is. To oh, the pot. so it's not like an even split. So they base it yeah. off of who you're working with that day is yeah. who owes. Yeah. So, okay, So the docs that I work with more often pay a little bit more. At least I think that's the way it works. I actually have no idea how it works in the background, but that was my understanding that if whoever I was working with that day, a certain percentage or a certain dollar amount from that day went towards my salary. Okay. Does that create an, any kind of awkward dynamic on, on the day-to-day basis that you're working with them? I don't think so. Most of the docs are actually really happy that I'm there, and some of them have actually asked me to work on my days off and that they'd be willing to pay for me to come in. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I don't think that they mind doing it that way. Um, it's, it works for us. It's not ideal. I mean, ideally there would be funding models in place that were more systemic, obviously, but it, it works for us. So. Okay. okay. So um, obviously you're well appreciated then since they're asking you to come more often and they're willing to pay you individually to do that. So obviously you've had really good results working there. How is it with your medical directives and getting board approval and that process? Is it fairly slow? Do you have an easy time getting that through or how is that going through? Uh, initially it was it was um, a bit tricky. We took you know medical directives from somewhere else and modified them as we usually do. But my rural hospital is one of a group of four hospitals so the board for all four hospitals has to approve my medical directives but I'm the only PA within the organization so although the directives the initial directives applied to all four sites despite not having PAs so getting them approved by the board who didn't really understand PAs and why only the one site got a PA etc etc was a bit difficult Um, having my medical directives, I recently edited them and got them updated to reflect my skill level that I'm now at, or at least somewhat reflect the skill level I'm now at, um, was a lot easier because I've talked to the board, I've been there a long time, my docs are really on board with giving me a little bit more autonomy in certain things that I had already been doing, but now I don't have to get co-signed every time I do them. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and ordering more tests because they realize that I'm, you know, more than capable of recognizing when those tests are important, not important, relevant, not relevant, that kind of thing. It's still not ideal. I can't prescribe by myself, which is a bit of a hindrance. Um, 
and it's, it's so probably everything a common use, everything for prescription needs to be co-signed. Yeah, so I don't have to have meds I order within the ER co-signed. Um, I don't order narcotics, and that's perfectly fine by me because it's, you know. Right, you don't really want that. I don't it, really want yeah. that. But if I need a narcotic, you know, acutely, the docs will give me an order for that very quickly. It's not been a major issue. Um, but it would be nice to be able to just write a prescription and not have to get it co-signed. For all the home meds. For all, you know, antibiotics and, you know, rash creams and, mm-hmm. you know, silly minor things like that. Um, but hopefully that will come along as the, um, reg- particularly in Ontario, as the regulation and um, stuff gets more clarified, that'll be a lot easier, I right. think. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, so... I I really do love my job. I mean, everybody has good days and bad days, but I totally, I really enjoy my work. So I think that's, I'm really lucky. Do you see yourself staying at this place? I hope so. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a bit of a commute for me and I now have a young family. So it would be nice to be home a little bit earlier, I think, but I really, really enjoy my work. So um, I don't, I'm not actively looking for anything else by any means. Right, right. So, I mean, if something came up and I couldn't keep my job, uh, obviously I would be looking or, you know, well, we get new doctors and things, dynamics can change and whatnot, but... And right now you're on a permanent, your permanent status at the uh, full-time with the hospital anyway. Yeah. So there's not, like, contracts that are ending. Oh, no, I've, I'm on a contract. I've got a three-year contract. Oh, okay. So I'm still on contract. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. So the frustrating aspect of keeping a job. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a lot better now. It's a three-year contract versus um, previously it was going every six months, which was super anxiety-inducing. It made you, you know, it makes you not. Um, you don't have any job security. You don't have any job security, short. so it makes you feel like you're unappreciated, even if the people you're working with really do appreciate the work you do. Uh, just not having job security makes you feel like you're not as valued as some mm-hmm. of the other employees, which isn't really the case, but that's sort of how I felt. But a three-year contract is is sufficient for me to feel secure in my job. So Right, and those six-month contracts are happening in between when the um, initiative funding was ending, yeah. and they were didn't have a model to fund you. Yeah, and it was sort of, well, the hospital, what will the hospital pay for? What will the government pay for? What will the docs pay for? And nobody really wanted to commit. So it's just sort of these six months contracts at a time and, you know, every time it would expire, the government would extend it a little bit further and so the hospital and the docs are not obviously going to pay more if they don't have to, obviously, that doesn't make any sense. So Of course. So that was probably the most frustrating part of being gay so far. Yes. um, Yes. Is the insecurity around having a job. Right, and obviously, like you're not the only one to have that problem, and we're hope that's what we're all here working towards, right? And the kappa is behind us, and hopefully, we're seeing some some progress with that. So hopefully, hopefully, that decreases <laughs> the frequency that PAs are experiencing that in their jobs. And in so you mentioned that like your scope of practice in the ER is actually pretty good, aside from writing prescriptions on discharge. Yep. Does that include uh, procedures, codes, like where, what kind of activity are you having within the ER itself? Um, well, it varies obviously depending on what 
comes in, but I usually see pretty much every patient that comes through the door, regardless of status, um, unless it's super busy. And then sometimes the the doctor and I will sort of tag team and Mm -hmm. get people through the door as fast as we can. We are a very small hospital, so if it's a code, everybody's there. The doc's there, I'm there. All the nurses in the building, which is usually only two. (laughs) If it's during the day, we have an RPN as well as the two nurses that are in the building. And if we're really lucky, then we have like a nursing supervisor in the building. (laughs) So if you happen to come in and you're coding and it's like 2 p.m. on like a Tuesday, there might be a total of like six people in the room. I mean, you are a primary example of how... PAs can be used appropriately to increase access to care. I mean, obviously you're in a small area and it is an an area of high need. And with only on average two nurses in the building, not just in the ER, but in the hospital, two nurses and one dog, you are there providing a significant change in the access to the number of patients that can be seen and moved through that ER. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, the community has realized that for sure. And there was a lot of, when I first started, there was a lot of hesitancy from the nurses around having a PA because they didn't, not so much that they were anti-PA, but they just didn't really understand the PA role. And so, you know, with the nurses union and whatnot, there was a lot of, oh, they're going to take nursing jobs. And, you know, if you have this, you won't get more staff for nursing. But the roles between NRN and a PA are so completely different. And now um, the, P- the, the nurses that I work with are really appreciative of having a PA and they love, I, I, um, I'm good friends with them, so I, I assume that they like me personally. <laughs> um, but they do, they really, um, they really do like having a PA. It makes, it makes the nurses' uh, life and job easier. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah. Well, you're on the front lines working for us, that's for sure. <laughs> So that's a lot about me and my sort of perspective on things. What about you, Becky? Tell us about your time in oncology. I really love oncology. I love the science behind oncology and the intricacies of that develop in the interaction between chemotherapy and the different targeted therapies available and how we are, are attacking cancer cells. So I really enjoy that. I also really enjoy the aspect of working with cancer patients. I feel very appreciated. Uh, by them and their families and I feel like I'm actually doing something of value so I really enjoy it. I happened upon oncology just by chance like it wasn't something that I set out for but when I moved to Canada I suddenly realized I didn't have a lot of job options in 2010 so and in fact I didn't have even the option of the new grad funding because that only applied to people who were new graduates in Ontario so I couldn't utilize that in fact I don't remember at the time any job postings for people who were not new grads so and I wasn't part of the initiative of bringing the the career to Ontario either I didn't even know how to become a part of that so I just started putting out my application by hand just cold calling and I ended up getting uh, the job in Owen Sound it was originally posted for a nurse practitioner but I got kind of lucky because the oncologists who were there all did their fellowships in the states so they knew exactly what a PA was and how to use them and it went quite well so I was the first PA in Owen Sound and there's always like the new just rusty pieces of starting a new job and being the first of a career in amongst people who, um, you know, the oncologist might know who I am, but the administration at the hospital and the nursing staff and 
other doctors at the hospital didn't know what a PA was and who I was. So it took a little bit of time, but once everybody got to know me, it worked really well. I was quite happy with my scope of practice there. I was able to order all, um, all sorts of blood work as well as imaging exams, including ultrasound, CT, MRI, and I was, you know, could talk to the pathologist and really understand what was happening and really order any multitude of things. Even getting patients transferred to a more acute center like Princess Margaret Hospital, I had no issue talking with the oncologist there as well. It really went quite well. I saw an average of about 10 patients a day, which in a family practice setting seems kind of low, but in an oncology setting, I think is right on target. <laughs> I don't think I could have seen many more than 10 on a typical day. And I also managed all of the inpatients, all of the admitting, and all of the discharging, as well as seeing those uh, 10 outpatient people in the clinic. And that slowly evolved to, of course, doing some palliative care. You can't do oncology without doing a bit of palliative care at the same time. It's just inevitable. I really also appreciated that aspect. I find it quite a privilege to be a part of people's lives during that period of their life. So that went really well uh, for about four years. I really enjoyed it. And then uh, and then I started a family. So that took me away from Owen Sound uh, for a short period of time. And I moved to doing palliative care in the community in Brampton. Um, it just worked a little bit better with my, my family. It was not quite as long of hours. And it was only palliative care. Most of the patients were uh, palliative due to an oncologic reason, but it was only palliative care in the community, which gave me a completely different perspective, not only of community versus hospital care, but also of the resources that are available in different lens because they vary drastically and dramatically, which was something I was not aware of until <laughs> faced with that. But I also very much enjoyed that. I also kind of cover for some people in just in family practice setting when somebody is on vacation, etc. I do that because I like to help the people I know. It's not something I enjoy quite as much. Family practice setting is not really my cup of tea. I like the acute, severely ill patients for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it's a completely different dynamic that I really enjoy. So. And right now, currently, I'm actually not employed. I am spending time with my family. I'm enjoying putting out this new podcast. And I'm also enjoying spending time with you, Rachel, working on our, our PA helpers uh, thing, too, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So we're doing that and doing that and enjoying that. And I'm also dabbling in a bit of medical writing now as well. So I guess I have my hands in a lot of buckets. <laughs> and, and that's okay for right now. That's just what works. Yep. Yeah. What is it about palliative care that you love so much? I have no idea. It's just really awesome. I, <laughs> it's, it's this, it's kind of like this window into a world that everybody else ignores. Uh, it's part of life. Everybody is born and everybody dies. And it's something that we need to put more focus on. If anybody deserves really good quality care at any point in their life, it is definitely at the end of life. And so many people are ignored when it happens or given not that ideal of care. I mean, you, you really shouldn't be dying in a hospital. Hospitals are busy, they're loud, they're for people who are sick and who are gonna get better and leave. It is not for people who are at a time of life that we can't change the circumstance 
we can hopefully make that comfortable for them, but we can't change the circumstance. And you, you know, ideally should be in a quiet, serene setting where there is room for your loved ones to be around you and not full of this busy, loud, beeping, things coming over the speakers and code red, code blue, code, all these things being yelled and nurses coming in rushed and having to share rooms with maybe a, somebody else who is in a completely different setting of life. It, that is not the way to go. Nobody wants to go like that. The ideally you should be calm, quiet, serene, and I hesitate to say this word, but even almost pleasant at times. And if we could get our culture to kind of come to a different understanding of what it means to die, maybe we wouldn't have a fear of it. And it could be something that whether or not we want it to happen, we can be ready for it to happen and deal with the grief, not only from the patient's perspective, but also of the people they love at the time. You know, like everybody goes through that grief and a good palliative care team should be able to handle the grief of the patient as well as the grief of their family members. It is so ideal for that to happen and I feel so blessed to have been allowed in the rooms with people who are in that situation. And yeah. to offer them some and, and to offer them some comfort. I, I really people ask me all the time if it's really sad, and I don't find it very sad. The only times that I find it sad, disturbing, and that I have had many tears over are the times where I can't get people comfortable, and it hasn't happened very often. Like I can count on one hand the number of times that's happened, but when it does happen, I, I really feel like I failed, and the whole team usually feels like we failed. It's definitely not a one-person effort. It is a multidisciplinary effort that when done successfully is really a beautiful thing that you walk away feeling really good about and that you feel like the family and the patient probably feel good about too. I mean, it's sad still, like nobody, nobody wants to lose somebody they love, but when it goes well, it goes so well. And the, but the times that it's sad that I actually shed tears about and get angry over are when, when for whatever reason, either medications don't work to control symptoms or we run, which is the more common side, it's not medications, the more common side is that there are administrative issues that you run into that end up blocking your ability to successfully achieve a calm passing. And, and those make me angry to the point of tears. <laughs> understandably. Yeah. That's totally understandable. Yeah. Okay, so Becky has a very unique perspective of being trained in the U.S., so what are the some of the big differences you see from Canada and the U.S. as far as PAs at this point? Well, it's interesting. Uh, it was a huge shock factor moving here for me because PAs have been established for 50 years in the U.S. So it's, I moved from a place where I was going to have no trouble finding a job, my pick of jobs, a really good salary, stability if I wanted, you know, if I wanted it, and, and everybody pretty much understanding what a PA is. Um, to a place where jobs seemed very scarce and nobody knew what a PA was and the pay is substantially less. So I, it was a bit of a shock. Also, I was not prepared for the animosity that seemed to come along amongst other professions. And we've mentioned in this podcast already, particularly the nursing profession, although I want to be really careful to say it has not been individual nurses that I've come across. I've had very good experiences working with individual nursing staff um, and become really good friends with them. That has never seemed to be the issue. The issue has really seemed to be on a, a more of an, an admin side that unions and administrative groupings as a whole seem to be kind of against the introduction of the PA profession. I would say that in the U.S. there is some mild animosity, but it, it isn't anywhere on the same scale that it is here. 
most of the time, I don't know if it's most of the time, but frequently jobs in the U.S. are posted for, it'll say, you know, looking for PA or NP in pediatrics or PA or NP in hematology, oncology, or whatever it is. They're often posted for both because they're both master's level degrees in the States. They both have the capacity to prescribe narcotics and on a similar level like their prescription prescribing authority is similar across the board i mean the diff there are certainly are differences but they are minuscule if we're quite honest the differences tend to be a bit more on the political side and you may have a reason to prefer one profession over the other but ultimately what it really comes down to is that most jobs pas and nps are capable of doing and that you want to find the right person for that job the personality the skill the knowledge base for that job so many jobs in the u.s are posted for either or there are some that are still selective postings for only NP or PA, but those are becoming fewer as time goes on. And of course, the scope of practice for PAs in the U.S. is huge, huge <laughs> in comparison. I mean, you would never, unless you're brand new to the practice or a brand new grad, even just if you've been practicing for a while, I mean, you should start a new job not expecting a physician to follow you with every patient, and that just doesn't happen. So here for many reasons, for billing reasons, for safety of practice reasons, for reasons that PAs just haven't been around a lot, and also for the reason that we practice under the license of a physician here. A lot of physicians follow up after every patient. At the very least, a lot of physicians say, hey, what did you do with this, even if they didn't actually see that patient. But there's a lot of repetitive work happening here that doesn't need to be happening, that it doesn't happen in the States. Certainly, if the PA comes across a patient they don't know what to do with, you go to the physician. Of course you do. Like, that is, of course. Sort of the whole point. Yes, that's <laughs> the whole point. But also part of the point is to see more people and reduce workload on individuals. So a PA might see a patient every 15 to 20 minutes, but the doctor's also seeing a patient every 10 to 15 minutes in the U.S., so you're seeing double the number of patients or more with each PA that you have on your, on your load. They also do many procedures. They're doing joint injections. They can do the nerve blocks. And if you're in the OR, like PAs do all the, they're doing all the pre-op physicals, the post-op care, and they're closing all the patients in the OR. So that's a lot of work, which is not happening here. Most surgical PAs are not actually in this, the OR yet here. And they're not doing the pre-op physicals. We're still sending the pre-op physicals to the family physicians. So, which is like another time-consuming effort because the patient on their own has to find a way to get in. Whereas if you've got a PA who can just do the pre-op right there, it's it's time-saving and cost-saving for both on both sides. So the scope of practice is almost incomparable. However, <laughs> I will say that I see an improvement in the time, in the seven years that I've been here, I see an improvement in the scope of practice that most PAs seem to be having from when I started to now. Oh, for sure. I've even it's, noticed that. Yeah, sure. it actually that's, seems that's pretty dramatic. It seems pretty dramatic. And I feel like the change that we're seeing with the PA profession here is happening on a faster curve than it did in the States. In the States, when it started, was a huge struggle uh, year after year after year, not only to get the scope of practice and the independence, but to get the acceptance and approval to practice and get the numbers. And um, when you look at the numbers, starting in the U.S. and starting in Canada, we're having a faster increase of both the number of PAs practicing, the number of schools teaching PAs, and the scope of practice changes. It's all happening on a faster curve than it started in the States. 
that's exciting yeah good news exactly (laughs) exactly and we have other counterparts that are also struggling but seeing improvement um you know we look at the uk and we're in the uk and there's absolutely people who feel that the profession is slow to move but really when you look at it the curve is happening quite quickly there they have a, a greater number of pas in the uk than we have here but it is their scope of practice is comparable and so they're seeing some improvement on a similar scale as we are same in australia the netherlands and even germany so we're we are spreading and we're here to stay yay (laughs) and of course there's i mean you could talk about the difference in pay as well it's tough to compare when the states has such a different system of healthcare healthcare (laughs) and and we won't get into all that here but but we make we can make that a topic for another podcast. We can make it a topic for... And truth be told, PAs in in Canada make uh, enough to live comfortably off of. And it may not be the six-figure income that most PAs are making in the States, but we are making enough to be comfortable. Yeah, and I mean, by comparison, the doc doing the same job in the States would make significantly more than a doc here. Right. So they also exactly. have a lot more liability. True. <laughs> so it's not, it's not an even comparison. No. Okay, well, I think, is there anything else you have to add, Rachel, about your experience? or No, I'm sure we'll do more of these podcasts where it's just you and I. We'll probably end up taking listener questions and talking about things that are up in the news. If you guys have any questions for either one of us or just in general, you can always email us at... You can just send us an email from our website, which is mt mtppodcast.com thanks you can contact us on there we also have facebook yes you can contact us on all the social media places also you can contact us on linkedin my name is rebecca Mueller and rachel thompson and we're both on linkedin you can feel free to contact us anyway also if you'd like us to interview you i mean this is what this podcast is about is getting to know our comrades and fellow pas across canada and building some Um, community for ourselves so if you would like us to interview you and you want to showcase something on the podcast please let us know yeah we'd be happy to have you on and uh, so thanks for joining us for our very first podcast and our launch and I hope that most of you have been able to make it out to the Kappa conference which is starting uh, tomorrow and if you're not here hopefully you can join us next year at the conference uh, in support of our really wonderful and growing profession oh so if you're a student, check out our sponsor, pahelpers.ca. We have all of your study guide needs there to help you pass the Canadian PA exam. The first and only study guide made for Canadian PAs. With Canadian units and Canadian gold standards. <laughs> uh, they also happen to be the sponsor of this podcast. All right, thanks and take care, everybody. Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca, where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.